you've got a Bible, it'd be great. And yeah, and you can turn in your handout. We didn't write out the scriptures for you, but you can follow along in your handout here. This is Paul, and he says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I think this connection between how we think, what we believe, and what actually plays out in our lives is is something that we can trace uh, from the very beginning of Scripture through the very end. It's something that Paul especially uh, goes after in the churches, this connection between the lies that we believe and the sinful and futile ways that we live and the renewing of truth in our lives and what it does to transform us. And we wanted to call this session just rethinking dating and relationships or something like that. I don't know if you have a title on your thing. If that's not that, then that's what we're calling it right now. Um, But because our conviction is that we have to think different to be different. If we as as a people, as a community, are going to escape some of the traps in our culture, we're going to have to think differently. You know, we started with this little clip because I think if we really get honest with ourselves about where do a lot of my views that I bring to uh, this topic of romance and relationships come from, uh, the scary reality is that a lot of them come from Disney and they come from the movies that we watch. And and we don't, uh, we're, we're not often discerning consumers of that. We don't sit and think through just some of those things. It's like, oh yeah, I don't really buy that, that if, you love someone, you should totally change yourself, you know, just to do that. And that true love can happen before the first conversation. And, you know, do I really buy those ideas? Or maybe we do. And and we haven't uh, sat and really thought through, does that hold up under scrutiny? So the questions that that we would ask you to ask yourselves today, and that we have to constantly ask ourselves in every area of life, is that as disciples, we're supposed to look different than the people around us, than the world around us. Paul said uh, to the Philippian church that they would shine like stars in the universe. And I get that picture of looking up at the night sky and there's black and then there's stars. And there's a distinct difference. We're supposed to look different. Do you? People looking at your life, and specifically in this topic, is there any difference of priority, difference of behavior, uh, difference of approach? We're supposed to think differently as disciples. And do you? Have you done the hard work of thinking, do I buy these assumptions that my culture brings to the table? Some of them are great. Some of them are the opposite of great. And I would say that for each one of us. We have to kind of constantly be uh, working through those things. And, And also on top of that, I would say we're supposed to feel differently about things than our culture, than everyone else. Uh, and, and we'll talk some more about feelings and the links with authenticity, but uh, one of our deepest problems is that we don't feel about things the same way that God feels about things. You know, I can watch someone being 
mocked or made fun of or mistreated. And if it's funny, I'll laugh. I think it's funny. But does God think that's funny? You know, or is his heart breaking? I can watch a movie where a criminal is the protagonist and, you know, and be, by the end, I'm excited that he got away and relieved when he finally sleeps with that girl that he met the day before, you know? Oh, goodness, what were they waiting for? You know, because the movies just play with our emotions. But do I feel about those things the way that God feels about those things? So our goals for us as a community is that we would look different, that we would act different, but that that would grow out of us thinking differently and hopefully ultimately feeling differently about these things. So we have some questions that we want to kind of start. We want you to start with these um, in just kind of commenting with the people that are right around you. Um, and I'm going to kind of give you a, a mishmash of questions. You don't have to go through them in order, but I want you to, to get the topic that we're going for here. Here's what we wrote. What's wrong with the world? And you can also kind of put modern church, because as, as Brady commented yesterday, a lot of this doesn't really look different. You know, there's America, there's the modern American church, and, and often it doesn't look very different. What's wrong with that pattern on dating? Who does it hurt? Does it consistently produce lasting and happy marriages? Does it lead to unity in the community? And does it lead to purity for most people? So kind of take that as a topic. What's wrong with it? Who does it hurt? Does it consistently produce lasting and happy marriages? Does it lead to community unity? And does it lead to purity for most people? So take about three, four, five minutes with two or three people around you and kind of talk about your reflections on just modern dating as an approach to marriage. Okay, go. All right, let's get some of you. Kind of, you have to speak loud from where you are. What, what were some of the best ideas that came out of your discussion? Charissa. Yeah. Yeah, so when we look at the demographics, the Bible Belt, you know, Southern churches, the divorce rate's not really any better, and in some cases is worse than in some of the, the less religious parts of our, of our country, for sure. Okay, Ralph. Well, I think there's, I think we'll, we'll deal with some of that. She was asking about just some of the cultural forces of individualism and liberalism and whether those things are the problem with marriage. Um, I think there's a whole lot of pressures and challenges to marriage in the modern world, some that no one's really ever faced until this generation. We're more mobile, which means we're more disconnected from our families of origin. Uh, you know, there was a time where you got married, but you just stayed with your family. And so there wasn't quite as much pressure on that one relationship. Uh, whereas now, it's like, if I get married to someone, I'm choosing someone, that's the one person we're sort of guaranteeing, I'm going to be with you forever. We may move across the world, but just the two of us are going to stay together. Well, that's, that's a bigger pressure. So I think there's a whole lot of things, and, and hopefully we'll touch on some of those. It's a good one. Kimberly, I think you had your hand up. Yeah, for sure. We are an instant gratification culture, and so we want to be ready for everything right now, and we will definitely address some of that as we go. One or two more. Katie. Yeah, it, it, sex is just a topic that we don't uh, deal with, and, and there's a, a very mixed uh, history of how the church has dealt with sex, no doubt, and that, that complicates things. Glenn? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's very tricky. And not only do people leave communities, it's one of the, the big reasons we see people really walk away from God, especially young Christians, that they get in a, a tough, you know, really emotional relationship, and then it's like, well, where do I go from here? I've poured my last few months into this one person, and now we're not together. And so they end up disconnecting from the people that can keep them uh, you know, tied into the community of faith. Uh, so we don't usually worry about you know, when, when a, 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 someone who's grown up in the faith and is, is grounded in their faith starts dating someone that's a, an infant Christian, it's not this grounded in the faith person that we're worried about. It's this other person, that if this goes badly, what, where are they going to be? And I just think about Jesus saying, you know, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. You know, we've got to take those warnings seriously, that the way we treat other people is a really big deal to God. I just kind of echo a lot of a lot of what Brandon was saying there. Um, some of you know my background. You know that I, I have my degrees in sociology and that I, and that I teach sociology at Collin. Um, one of the things that, that my students always express some amount of shock at after we go through uh, my course is just the, the, the pervasiveness of culture uh, and just how much it really affects you and you don't really even know it. For instance, who would be willing, there's probably a couple of you weirdos out there like myself, but who would be willing to stand up and belt out their favorite song as if they were in the shower at home by themselves or in their car. There's a reason why, I know you would, Ann. There's a reason why, there's a reason why, though, that we don't do that. And it's because we care deeply about what other people think. And we care deeply about um, being normal. And, and that's something that as, as, as disciples we have to shed if we truly want to seek the truth in Christ. We can't do that. You have to shed that this, this desire to just fit in and to be normal. Because you begin to see that the things in your culture are not so much eternal truths. Dating is no eternal truth. In terms of the relative scale of human existence, dating is something that's only just fresh on the scene. Okay? Um, it's, it's pogs, if you guys remember the 90s. Um, it's, you know, it's Pokemon. You know, it's Yu-Gi-Oh! still, for some of you. Um, Albert. Um, you know, it's, it's those things. These are things that are going to come and go. Dating will go just as it came. And, and some, in some form or fashion, dating will eventually be extinct. Um, we're not, again, trying to, to say that, that you shouldn't date then. You're going to hear very different advice from us. We just want you to do it in a godly way. But if you think about, you know, regimes, you know, think about the Third Reich. Think about Hitler. How does a whole country, how does a whole country buy into exterminating a group of people? to literally killing off a whole group. And you think to yourself, if I was there, I certainly wouldn't have bought into that. You're wrong. There's been so many, if, you're, if, you're a, if you've studied psychology or sociology at all, what we find is we are extremely affected by the people around us and what they think. Um, and we have to, like I said, we have to shed those things. Most if we can go ahead and put that PowerPoint up, that'd be great. So really what I want to get at here, uh, we're going to kind of do a T-chart. If you see that in your notes there, it says worldly thinking says and godly thinking says what we're getting at with that is, this is what our culture says on, in the worldly thinking. But this is what our God says. Um, and, and there's just timeless, eternal wisdom in what God says. And, and the wisdom of this world is just so quickly fleeting. And we have to be aware of that. So, um, 
For each one of these, what I'd like to do is I'm going to say worldly thinking says, and I'm going to say something. If you have ever at any point in your life thought that, I would like for you to raise your hand, all right? So try to be as full disclosure, uh, as honest as you possibly can. So the first one, worldly thinking says, if it's natural, it's authentic. Natural equals authentic. I certainly have believed that at some point. Um, we, uh, we have something on our campuses called discipleship class. You guys have probably heard about it. Um, if you haven't, then uh, maybe another student can tell you about it. Um, we had this discussion in discipleship class about this whole concept of natural being authentic. And we believe that, don't we? Well, the question is, what is natural, right? Because what we see is that each culture, successively throughout history, and also just in different geographical areas, find, to be, or find what's natural to be very different things, right? So is it natural to uh, dance around a fire while slashing your wrists and slashing your arms and things like that? Well, to some cultures, they're like, of course. You know, why is that? Why, what do you mean unnatural? What are you going for there? So the problem is that we have somehow uh, combined this concept of natural with authentic. And in reality, these things are not natural, nor are they authentic. Think about, for one moment, all the things that come naturally to you. If you've studied Freud, maybe the, the id might pop up into your mind. Basic, the basic drives. Think of all the things that come naturally to you. How many of those things are things that God would say, you need to do that more and more? <laughs> not many. I don't know about you guys. Maybe I'm just a bad person. But most <laughs> things that are bad come naturally to me. Very naturally. You know, I want to take care of myself. I want to do what I want to do. I don't want to deny myself at any given time. And so the, the, the flip side of that is what godly thinking says. And godly thinking says that sometimes really true authenticity is found in what's unnatural to you. And really this gets at the rub of it. Um, so in, in, that, in that class I was telling you about that I teach, I have them do a social, what we call a social norm experiment. And what they have to do is they have to break a social norm in public apart from any of their friends. Nothing bad or crazy or rude or anything like that. Things like... Stand really close to somebody in line. Just break their personal space. Things like, you know, say something that's really, you know, totally offhand to somebody. Um, you know, go try to hold somebody's hand. <laughs> that kind of stuff. And it seems like a gag, and it's not meant to be that. What they always express without fail is just this extreme sense of embarrassment for being different, for doing something that's out of the norm. Just this extreme sense of embarrassment. And... And in reality, that's not, you know, that's not, not normal. <laughs> you know what I mean? What's normal about slapping hands to, to show that you're, you know, happy about something? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, that's really natural. We, we slap our hands together. <laughs> what would somebody that was in, you know, the, the first century before Christ, what would they think about seeing people do that? They're like, what? They, they appear to be touching hands. <laughs> and they're excited about something. Who knows? Um... So what, what, the reason I say that is because we have to really start to open our minds up to really what is true in Christ. And a lot of times to really, you know, to really do the will of God, you will at least at first feel very embarrassed. You will feel kind of weird about it. Like it might seem weird for us to say something like choose your dates carefully and maybe go out on dates with people that you may not have some great physical interest in. Everyone's like, that's not natural. Once again, <laughs> what's natural? You know what I mean? It could really open up your, your heart and your mind with that. Did you want to add anything to that, Brandon? Yeah, I just, one thing that actually I, I heard Brady say and that has really stuck with me over the years is 
this question of authenticity is, do I want to be authentic to the man that I am right now, or do I want to be authentic to the man that I'm becoming in Christ? Yeah. And that's been a question I've asked myself over and over again in those moments where it's like, well, here's what feels authentic, but that's also the feeling that comes out of just who I am right now, and this is not who I want to stay. So this next one um, really touches at the heart, and I think of all of us. Um, and, and it says, worldly thinking says, it's my business. Who's thought that before? <laughs> if, you're not, if you're not raising your hand, then I would uh, doubt your authenticity. <laughs> um, this concept of it's my business. And you've heard ad nauseum this idea that, you know, the United States is this really individualistic culture. Um, and I, I don't want to harp on that anymore, but there's this idea that if you start to get, if you start to talk with someone about like dating and maybe giving advice and maybe even putting input into their life on dating and many other things, then you really start to see who people are. Mm -hmm. Have you ever done that with a friend? You're great friends, you're buddies, and then you tell them about how they keep leaving the seat up or down, depending on if you're male or female, <laughs> um, and uh, and they just kind of bare their teeth at you, don't they? Um, and, and really, that's what it, it, it strikes at the heart of that. Do you think? that your dating life is only your business? Or do you not realize that you are a part of a community of believers that has every right to judge what you say and do? That's what, that's what Paul said. Is it not my right to judge those in the church? Why judge those outside? It's, I'm supposed to judge those inside. And we are supposed to, as a community, be holding each other accountable for those things. And that's what that godly thinking says, if we go to that next one. It's our business. Now that is unnatural isn't it? Doesn't that feel unnatural to you? Why would my dating somebody else be everyone's business? It's yours because you have an effect on our community. If you are a part of our body, then you are a part of our body. Mm -hmm. If my finger does not want to do work, he just does not get to decide to not do work. He's going to do it. You understand? <laughs> and so if you are somebody that tries to keep that kind of thing to yourself and thinks that that, that only affects you, you're very wrong. I've seen too many times people in our community that have dated thinking it's my business only, and they've really injured our community. They really have. And you can do that, too, just through selfishness. Yeah, just the, the, the passage we read earlier in Romans 12, uh, again, one that's just challenged me over and over. Uh, just a couple verses later in verse 5, he says, So in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. And I think one of the things we often bring to the table is that in, in our, our focus on self, our self-centrism is that, you know, if I have a problem, then I have a problem. If someone else has a problem, then they have a problem. And uh, I remember sitting with a, a young lady that was, I, she was bragging. It was very sad, but she was kind of telling me about these other Christians in her class and how they came in late and they you know, would be obnoxious and no one really liked them and thought that they were rude. And, and so she would go, you know, after to the non-Christians and the professor and, you know, and say, I'm so sorry as a Christian. You know, I just, they are not representing Christ. And, you know, and it was kind of this sense of, you know, well, that's, that's their problem and I'll just look good. And I'm like, no, if, if, your sisters in your class are doing that, then you have a problem. You own that. You've misunderstood the nature of Christian community. You don't need to be going and talking to those people so that you look better. You need to be going and talking to those girls 
so that they can look better, so that Christ can look better. Uh, so I think this, that's the perspective that we bring to this, that we matter to one another, uh, that we're in this together, and, and we are very interconnected as a community. There's this, this tight web of one-on-ones, and there's not much that one of us does that doesn't affect another 10, 20, 30, 40 people in some way. Uh, and with that sort of outward focus that Brady uh, was talking about last night, that the Spirit calls us to an outward approach uh, to our brothers and sisters, we're trying to get you to wrestle with how does that, uh, you know, interact with this topic of dating. So the next one, uh, worldly thinking says, follow your heart. So sometimes guys wouldn't raise their hand for this, but what I mean, everybody, is that you do as you feel. Okay, so that's what that's what it is. So let's raise our hand for that one if you've ever experienced that before. Yes, we listen to our heart all the time. We do exactly as we feel. This one is one of the most dangerous ideas, I think, to follow. It treats, it treats your heart as if it is um, the, 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 the centralized location of truth and reality. When in, in, in reality, that is not the place of it. I can tell you that um, to, to be sure. And, and Brady had said something the other night to the effect of, when my heart's in the right place, I can follow it. And sometimes when it's not, it's my job to whip it back into shape and make it there. Um, but a lot of times, especially when it comes to dating, we have to do things uh, the opposite of what our heart is telling us. We've all probably experienced something like having a feeling for someone where your heart just said, like, go for it. Like, I mean, all out, you need to sprint towards the person and marry them as fast as possible. Because if you don't, then they're going to go off the market, and we know that the economy is bad and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the dating economy is, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but really what godly thinking there says is that God's word judges my heart. You know, that's what's really at the, at the, at the, at the heart of the issue. We've talked about this before in discipleship class um, with choosing our friends and how we go about choosing them. And one of the things that really, that really, I think, sticks in some people's mouths is just this idea of I could feel something and feel it strongly. And God's word says something that's, that's very different. So which do I choose? You know? If, even if I feel strongly one way, as if the, the, how could the truth be clearer, you know? Uh, and God's word says something that runs opposite to that. Which one have you chosen in the past? Which one have you chosen in the past? It's so important that we learn to become submissive to the scripture and the spirit of God. Because a lot of times you're going to say, I don't feel like it. And you know what? I can't think of many times where um, the great men of the faith felt like it. You know, I can't think of Jesus, like, really feeling like dying on the cross. I can't think of Paul really feeling like being flogged. I can't think of any of the disciples feeling like being martyred. And yet they did it because they were assenting to a higher truth than their heart. And that's the question. Do you assent to the higher truth of Scripture outside of your heart, or do you feel like in your heart exists all truth? Yeah. Yeah, and that's just Hebrews four twelve. You know, the word of God judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. And as we grow up, we see these attitudes that I used to hold and think, yeah, that was that needed to be judged. As a culture, we can look back even, as we talked, just 50 years. Some of our attitudes towards people that don't have the same skin color as us, people that are a different gender than we are, those attitudes sorely needed to be judged. But they felt so right to the people that felt them. And so we have to have a different standard than just 
what feels right at the moment. And, and it's dangerous, again, in our self, uh, self-centeredness to sort of think, well, yeah, they have wrong attitudes, but now we've got all the right ones. Well, no. You know, we're, we're just as broken as the people 50 years ago. Our brokenness is just different, but we can always slip right back into that stuff if we don't have a higher standard, and that, that's what God's word gives us. All right, so this next one, worldly thinking says, it's my right. Who's ever thought that before? It's, it's your right. I would just kind of say something. You've been given all kinds of rights by the United States, by colleges, by your friends and family that the Bible and that God has not given you. It would be something like me wanting to, let's say that I was 15 years old and I had a little brother, and I do. So at this time, my little brother was 11. If you know Grant, then you, this is even funnier. So it's like 15 years old. If I ask my parents, hey, can I uh, you know, take the car and maybe go to Wendy's, grab myself a bite to eat? And they're like, no. And I'm like, Grant, can I take the car to Wendy's and get a bite to eat? He's like, yeah, sure. You know, let's go together. So I take it. That's kind of what it's like whenever you are taking up the rights that you have as an American or as, you know, um, a college student or as, you know, you fill in the blank, and yet completely denying the things that have been denied to you in other, in other ways. It's not your right to get to date whomever you want, whenever you want, however you want. That's not your right. That's not the way that it works. Godly thinking asks the question, what pleases my Lord. That is at the heart of a disciple. But find out what, are, what, what pleases the Lord. Mm-hmm. That's really at the heart of, of, what, of what real discipleship is about. It's not what can I get away with. It's not do I, as a you know, 19-year-old, 20-year-old you know, college student, do I have the right to date other people? The, the, the answer is yes to that question. You have the right to do all kinds of things. But the question is, does it please God? You know, is it going to please God the way that you're doing it? Is it going to please God who you're dating? Is it going to please God h- how you date? That kind of thing. And that's so important for us to really understand. Yeah, I think college is a great time for learning to ask the right question. Uh, being a disciple is about learning to ask the right question. You see that in Jesus' life. People constantly came up and asked him a question and then instead of answering it, he asked them the right question. He reframed the discussion. This is the question that really matters. I had this week, even heading into camp, I was talking to one of the Corpas, and he was saying, yeah, I talked to this guy in, in my group, uh, and, but he's not coming to camp. And I said, why not? And he said, well, he said he didn't want to. I said, is he a Christian? And he's like, yeah. And I said, then what's that got to do with it? whether I want to or not. You know, the, the question is not whether I want to. The question is whether God wants me to. And I can't answer that for that kid. He's got to go ask God that. But, but I know when someone says that, well, I don't want to. It's like that they haven't asked the right question yet. And that's what we're trying to, to guide you in in some of this. It's not about what do I have the right to do. That's the wrong question. The question is what really pleases the Lord if we're people who call him Lord. Okay, so this next one, worldly thinking says go hard or go home. So some of you are kind of thinking to yourself, like, I don't know what that means. Um, Let me explain it some. Basically, the idea is if you find somebody you're interested in, there's no real barrier stopping you to engaging in a relationship with that person. 
Um, and I'm familiar with the way that this works because I think, I, I believe I'm a member of your generation as well. What happens is I'm interested in somebody, and so I text them. You know, kind of cast the line out there, you know? <laughs> just, just toss a little bobber in the creek, you know? See if something bites. If they respond back, then if they're, if they're a guy and they respond back, they're certainly interested in you. If they're a girl, they might just be being nice to you. We'll <laughs> explain some of the nuances later. <laughs> Guys are pretty cut and dry. If they show interest, they're interested. And if they don't, they're not. Um, so, you know, we, what we do is we, so we start the texting, the texting brigade or whatever you want to call it, where we just start talking. Okay, and that's the phase of the relationship called we're talking, right? I know your lingo, you see? We're talking. What's the big deal? I say goodnight to them. I say good morning to them. I ask them about, like, what your deepest fear is over text. I, I don't know, I just, I, you know, I ask you about how your day is going regularly. Some of you are getting burned right now, by the way, I'm sure. You're like, oh, Some of them I don't, are texting yeah. each other. <laughs> they're like, can you believe him saying this stuff? <laughs> um, so, you know, but it's this idea of uh, kind of no holds bar, you know, there's no such thing as too fast. As long as we don't have sex, we can do everything else, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, any, and, and we also have this really fake idea that emotional intimacy is not as dangerous as physical intimacy, um, and that's not true at all either. Um, and so we just, you know, are emotionally just kind of, we throw ourselves out there, we just kind of spill out our emotional intimacy with somebody else, um, and we wonder why we get hurt um, whenever you're only hopefully going to be successful once. Um, and so <laughs> it's, it, again, a really interesting idea, but what godly thinking says is that we should use patience and caution. You know, I always kind of have a gag reflex when I see the Facebook picture that says, you know, like a woman should guard her heart, you know, and, or, you know, a guy has to go to God to find the heart of a woman. I don't know. I don't know why I have that. Like, I guess I assent to its truth, but it's just kind of sick when people post that. Um, but it's just this idea, this idea that you would, sorry if I burned some other people there. Um, uh, but it's, it's, it's just this idea that we ought to really be careful with the way that we go about being interested in people even, not just dating, the way that you go about being interested. Have you really observed the person at all, or are you just taking their word for it? You guys know that dating is something like an interview. When you go into an interview, they're like, so do you have any, um, like, experience with this, like, AutoCAD programming? And you're like, yeah, I mean, AutoCAD, you know, I know what that is. <laughs> uh, and they're like, well, what about this? And you're like, I do it all day, every day, and uh, I'm really good at it, and, you know, I'm just completely qualified for this job. Well, in dating, everyone puts on their best face, and so you think they're perfect, but you haven't observed them in any kind of, like, real relationship with anybody else, uh, and you haven't really paid attention there. Well, that's, that's caution, and patience is just the idea of really being purposeful about how you go about dating that person. Would it be unnatural for me to tell you that maybe you should put limits on the amount of time that you spend together? Would it be unnatural for me to tell you that maybe you should put limits on how much you talk to one another? Would that be unnatural to you? Well, maybe we need to start doing some unnatural things then in focus. Okay. I said it all that time. Wow. That that's good. good. All right. Sweet. Um, so the last one. Worldly thinking says, I'll take what I can get. <laughs> no one raises their hand. They're like, I'm not desperate, anybody. I'm not desperate. I'm not. I swear I'm not desperate. Um, yes. So there's <laughs> a couple of people in that like, shoot, I'll take what I can get. Um, thank you. Thank you, sir. Honesty. So 
And, and really, what I'm not going for there, this whole idea of like anyone that shows interest in me, it's like, I'll take what I can get. What I'm going for there is just this idea of if I show interest in someone or if I you know, like someone and they like me back, what's to stop me? You know, what's the big deal? What's, I, I can kind of do what I want, take what I can get, that kind of thing. That kind of lack of discernment is really troublesome. Um, it's, it, it always is funny to me to think about this whole concept of, you know, 18 and 19-year-olds really just kind of willy-nilly choosing someone because they like them um, and then continuing on in a relationship with one another. Um, but really what godly thinking there uh, says is that we should use discernment. And this is a lot like the one beforehand, but really discernment is just this idea that we would be very wise about how we choose mates. Are you choosing based on opposites attract? Because uh, opposites will eventually do what opposites are meant to do, and they will detract. Uh, so uh, no, there's a lot of really good ideas that we have to really uh, be thinking about in, in regards to this whole discernment thinking. Are, are we really being discerning? Yeah, and I, I think the, the whole issue of discernment is about wisdom. That Again, the right question isn't, well, what, what's right? Because so often we're looking, it's, as long as I don't sin, then that's great. It's like, well, that's great if you want to end up like the rest of our culture. Yep. You cannot have sex before you get married and still end up in a miserable marriage. A lot of people don't have sex before their marriage, and then, sadly, they don't have sex after their marriage either. You know, and that's just the, the world we live in. It's watch sitcoms, and you'll see how much we make fun of just that idea. Um, wisdom is, goes beyond the issues of right and wrong. It steps into the gray. That's what we're talking about with discernment. And we want you to be uh, thinking deeply about these things, not just for yourself, but also so that we have something to offer the people around us that's compelling. Uh, you know, we have challenges as a, a church in America. Right now, we have, you know, culture wars around marriage and defining marriage. And the church wants to speak loudly, but I think the world is looking and thinking, you don't do marriage any better than we do. Where is your authority on this topic? You know, it's, it's what Carissa said. If our divorce rate looks worse than theirs, why would they listen to us about the definition of marriage? You know, we've got to have something compelling, and that means we're going to have to go beyond the simple issues of right and wrong and into the issues of better and best. And that's going to be the next question. Our goals for you in dating, and this isn't just about this morning. This is as we sat and thought about as pastors, what, what do we want to see? Um, the, the first is that we want you to be people, not just in dating, but in every area of life who go for what's best. I want you to just kind of take a second with your neighbor and answer this question. Do you tend to go just in life? It's your approach for okay, for good, or for best. You know, in life, are you a C student, a B student, or an A student? You know, what are you looking for? What's your goal? Take a second and just kind of answer that with the person next to you. What's your approach to life? Okay, 
you know, it's, th there has to be discernment in this because we can't go for 100% on everything. But I think there is a, an underlying approach to life, and it's our conviction that disciples are people who want what's best. The way we measure that is, what does God really want? God always wants what's best for us because he's perfectly good. Uh, he wants the best in our lives, and I can look at certain things in people's lives and see whether they're going for what's best. People that want what's best usually ask advice from really wise people. They've, they've made that a process because they think, well, I don't have it in me by myself to get what's best. Let's find people who are better at this than me, whether that's my finances or my relationships or my schooling. People who want what, you know, students who want what's best are often the ones who are, you know, they're meeting with the professor whenever they don't understand something. And then there's the rest of us who just kind of hope for the best by the end of the semester. The question is, what would need to change in your heart and life for you to be someone who goes for what's best? What would need to change in your heart for you to be someone who seeks God's best for your life? Because we think that's the path of discipleship. Another goal for you in dating is just making and maturing disciples. It's our mission. It's, it's what Christ has left us here to do. And if we begin to take, well, we do that in this little context, you know, and not over in these things, then we've missed the point. We're left here to do something that's important to God, and we've got to bring every area of our life to bear on that. Now, what I don't mean by that is some sort of missionary dating, you know, that dating is just a great opportunity to reach out to non-Christians, and, you know, especially we'll just get our cutest and funniest, and we'll send them out as our missionaries to the campus. You know, that's, that's not what we're talking about at all. But in the context of community, that, that we want to do this in a way that brings maturity. We want to do this in a way that doesn't block the making of disciples. We've had people over the years, you know, they're coming, they're investigating God for the first time, they're thinking about that, they're studying, and then all of a sudden, you know, some Christian comes swooping in from the side, and they're dating, and then this person's no longer studying, learning, thinking. You know, that, that we've allowed the, uh, you know, our interest in dating to get in the way of the mission. We've put ourselves ahead of God in that case. And then dating is a great context for maturing disciples. Because it exposes us, it challenges us. We get with other godly people that will speak into our lives and see parts of our lives that sometimes our same gendered friends don't ever really get to see. What am I really like in those contexts? And so when we get to, to date in the context of brothers and sisters in the Lord, uh, it can be a really positive thing towards our mission. Uh, the next one, learning selflessness. Learning selflessness. You know, dating trains us in selfishness. It's really a me-centered process. What do I want? What am I looking for? Is this going to be the right fit for me? Uh, but marriage does not require a lot of selfishness to be successful, right? If we want to be successful in marriage, we need to grow in selflessness. And, and the challenge that we have in America is that our system of getting to marriage is not really a system that prepares you for marriage. It doesn't touch on the right character things often. And so we want to think about how can we 
do this dating thing in a way that produces selflessness. Our goal is great marriages, not just continually married. So often I think we think the goal is to not get divorced, but that's really not our vision is a whole lot of people. That's like my youth minister, I've shared this before, who would share with us his vision for us as a youth ministry that 40 years from now we would all still be attending church. Great, I'm fired up, you know, ready to attend for the next 40 years. You know, it's like that's our goal for you is not that whoever you marry, you're stuck with them for life, come hell or high water. You know, that's maybe that's what some of us have to experience. But, you know, our goal is great marriages, happy marriages, marriages that that uh, promote the kingdom in the lives of people around them, marriages that are inviting and that have an impact, marriages that raise kids who love the Lord. We, have, we want to go far beyond continually married. And Garrett, Garrett's whispering great sex. He wants you to have great sex. And I would say that too. You know, marriages that are, are fun and that the relationship doesn't break down in all this passive aggression and punishment and all those kinds of things. Um, a ministry that values and cares for everyone involved, not just the ones that are popular or cute or funny, you know, we as a ministry are defined uh, in Jesus' mind, I think, by how we treat the people that the world doesn't treat good. You know, not by how we treat the, the person that, you know, they walk in and they're going to win the popularity contest anywhere. James rebukes the church in his letter because when the, the rich people would come, they would say, oh, here, here's a seat. And then a poor person would come, and they would say, oh, you, there's a spot on the floor over there for you. And he says, that has nothing to do with Jesus. You know, we're not quite as captivated by how much money people have, and often we really can't tell. It's one of the nice things about our kind of casual approach to church these days is that you really don't know how much money they have. But how do we judge by those same worldly standards? You know, what are we looking for? So often it's personality and looks and those kinds of things, and we elevate people. And we also want to be a ministry that elevates the high callings of both singleness and marriage in our community. You know, one thing I appreciate about Northeast Church and Wiley Northeast Church is that uh, they as a community have sort of rejected this approach to, you know, every time a married person talks to a college student, it's like, well, when are you going to get married? And then someone that, you know, gets married, it's like, well, when are you going to have kids? Well, when are you, you know, because we've got these cultural ideas of like, well, this is the next step and you've got to do it. But the scripture elevates singleness as its own special calling. We sometimes talk as if single people uh, couldn't marry, uh, minister to married people. Well, that's very problematic given Jesus' marital status. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That, that he has something to offer, not out of his marriage experience, but out of his God experience, out of the wisdom that came from God. Paul also addresses that. So we have to be careful about being a community that honors those who are married or who have a great relationship and doesn't honor those who are uh, walking a path of singleness. 
whether for a temporary time or for the long term. Okay, why dating well is so important? And then we'll move on to some more interesting things, I think. I just want to make a couple comments here. Um, we think dating well is important because of problems in our society. That's the first one. Miserable marriages have become just a joke to us. Uh, divorce rate, so many people, no expectation of ongoing marriage. I remember one of the, the women that we converted early on in our ministry, and she had come from a family where there literally was not an intact marriage on either side of her extended family. And so she was coming to Christ, and she was very interested in one of our young men, and he'd come from this stable Christian family, and we were cautioning them, just kind of give it some time, give her time to, to grow up, to mature, to think through these things, and they did. They, they took things slow, and, uh, and she was able to really rethink her worldview, really rethink her thoughts on marriage. When they finally got engaged, her dad, instead of saying congratulations, just said, well, make sure you have a good job, essentially so that when you get divorced, you're okay. You know, that was his congratulations to her. It's the worldview she came out of. Um, but by the time she had uh, let Christ really minister to her for a couple of years, she had an expectation of ongoing marriage. But it's interesting because the, you know, people have done these questionnaires and things. Who wants to be married one time? It's like, oh, most people. Who expects to be married one time? Not very many. And, and that is a problem. The effect that that's having on our kids. And so many of us have been affected by that. And that's not necessarily to say that just staying with the first person that we get married to is going to be great for all of our kids. I don't, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying this whole approach to relationships, a lot of the, the fundamental ideas that we bring and how we get in the relationships that we get into, all of those things are having a detrimental effect on us as a culture. We're passing them down generation to generation. So I think there are a lot of great people who've made the best of what they have, of where they're at, and they've been great parents. Um, but as a culture, there's a breakdown in terms of our expectation of, of family and what's healthy. Um, the second one is problems in the church. Immorality has become the expectation. It, you know, it, it's amazing how there was a day where... Uh, you know, where we wouldn't expect that just every young Christian person is being sexually active. But now in a lot of the churches, we don't even talk about it. We don't even address it. And it's just sort of rolling. That's what happens. If we're not different as a church, how can we speak to the world about marriage and relationships? And I talked about that earlier. So as a church, we're dysfunctional on this topic. and We often don't have much to offer. And then, of course... Problems in individuals. And some of this looks different for men than for women. Uh, you know, we often don't know our identity in Christ because we wrap up our identity in some other person, all sorts of codependency and issues like that. This hookup culture that just sort of takes so lightly uh, the, the sanctity of our, of our bodies and uh, the, the spirit that God has put within us. We see all kinds of pornography and just the warping of our minds. And there's the, you know, the pornography that appeals 
in general to men. It's lots of naked people. And then there's the pornography that appeals in general to women, which is all these unrealistic uh, views of romance and relationships. But in all of that, we're just sort of warping our minds and believing lies and getting more and more confused of what real love and life looks like. Uh, the many marriages that a lot of our dating really is, we just sort of, you know, we've been together for 18 years and we, we share a cat, you know, and, and so then we decide we're going to break up, but it's not a breakup, it's a divorce, you know, there's this rending of hearts and so many people now, it's, it's so hard to, to sit and talk with people who, they're 18, but they've really been divorced three times, there's no paperwork, you know, there's no paper trail to those divorces, but their hearts are just as torn up. You know, because they've gotten so close so many times, but those relationships didn't have any of that context of covenant that protects it, that protects their heart. And so there's so much heartbreak. Any comments on those, Garrett? Um, I'll just say in terms of the, the society one, I think that society uh, and, and people in general are looking for contentment. Um, and, and I think the reason that you see so much divorce is that people believe that they have this right to be happy. And it's interesting because when you try to make yourself happy, you will be unhappy. When you try to make other people happy, you will be happy uh, by no work of, of, of your own. And, and I think that that is a, is a deep spiritual truth that, that the world has long forgotten. And so the reason that you see um, so, so many, you know, divorces and things of that nature is because at some point we've forgotten that fact. The fact that, you know, that, that the road to happiness is not found by your striving to reach happiness, but rather by selflessness and by, by caring for others and that God provides for us in that way. So that's all I'd say there. Perfect. We're going to plow through number two, and then we're going to take about a 15-minute break here. Um, okay, we call this dating for dummies, as in these are ideas we think are kind of dumb. Um, <laughs> but they're ideas that are kind of all around us. Uh, and like most good lies, I think most of them contain a little bit of truth. There's, there's some truth to them. It's not that these are complete falsehoods, but that's what makes them dangerous. Uh, so we're going to kind of go through these pretty quickly here. Um, the first one is that there's just one right person out there for everyone. There's just one right person out there for everyone. And there's even a really spiritual Christian version of this. And we love like Adam and Eve or Isaac and Rebecca. You know, um, I mean, great examples for all of us to follow, right? Isaac was probably 40. Rebecca's probably 13. You know, they were the, made for each other and the Lord led them. You know, and again, we take anecdotal things, but, but the scripture tends to deal much more practically with marriage. Paul, in, in addressing uh, widowed women, basically says, you have the right to take a husband as long as he's a believer. Great. You know, and that was sort of, he doesn't say, find the one. You know, spend hours in prayer and the Lord will lead the one to you. Um, but, but that idea, maybe we reject it at a, at a surface level, but I think it takes root in our hearts and it leads to a lot of problems. I, I love this little story. This is a Stephen Colbert book. <laughs> and he, uh, he calls this section, Stephen Speaks for Me, a chance for average Americans to agree with what I think. Um, <laughs> but this is about your soulmate. And so it says, hey there, I'm your soulmate. The one person on this earth who's perfect for you in every way. Yes, I exist. 
And yes, everyone else you've been with is a pale substitute. We're meant to be together, but we've never met. You see, there are six billion people in the world, and you encounter at most 1,000 people per day. So statistically, our paths would only cross once every 16,500 years. <laughs> if we're going to beat those odds, you need to work harder, because so far, you've done a spectacular job of messing this up. Remember when you bought that pack of gum and the clerk asked if you wanted a bag, but you were in a rush, so you said no. If you'd waited that extra three seconds, you would have missed the next train, making you late for the play. So they wouldn't have let you in the theater until the first scene was over, and I would have entered the lobby also late, and we'd have gotten to talking. We probably would have just skipped the play and gotten coffee, and then, pow, 50 years of golden summers at the lake house. <laughs> Another example, remember when you signed up for a yoga class? You should have signed up for a pottery class. I was taking a pottery class. <laughs> How hard is that to figure out? And don't just sign up for a pottery class next time because I might have moved on to hip hop cardio. <laughs> I can't tell you exactly where I'll be because if you're really my soulmate, you'll just know. <laughs> Please, just get it right. Last time I dealt with my disappointment by going out with the pottery instructor. I guess what I'm saying is, next time you think about the museum, or going to the museum today instead of tomorrow, when I'll be there, ask yourself, do you really want to spend the rest of your life alone? <laughs> are you going to take the bus or are you going to walk? If you do walk and it's raining, how are you going to see me under my umbrella? Unless I don't have one and share yours, or I share mine and that's how we meet. So remember, never leave the house without an umbrella or with one. It's your choice. <laughs> I think I explained pretty, pretty clearly what's at stake. Are you reading this book at a bookstore? I'm right behind you. Turn around. <laughs> Am I still there? You're a slow reader. <laughs> Point is, hanging, <laughs> hanging over every decision you make, however small, is the sword of our loneliness. I am out there. Find me, but please hurry. I know we're meant together to be together for eternity, but I can't wait forever. Oh my gosh, I just ran into my pottery instructor. That's so <laughs> random. <laughs> but you know, it's, there is an absurdity to that. And I think we have to be a little more practical about that. That there are probably lots of people that, as a disciple, that I could make a life with and that we could stay together and, and be happy and be productive. And there may be people that we're better matched with or worse matched with, but that's just a dangerous assumption uh, that, that so many of us kind of hold on to because it's a really sweet idea. Yeah, and, and I just kind of say to add on to that, that idea, um, I, I was a, a girl's softball coach for a while, uh, for high school softball. Um, yeah, I know. There you go, everybody. Uh, so... <laughs> Um, and I remember my girls asking me about Erica at the time because I was dating Erica, and, and one of the girls was like, well, how do you know she's the one? And so I, like, went into a, a, a little spiel about, like, how that's wrong and that kind of <laughs> stuff, and she was like, that's, that just sounds awful, doesn't it? And I just kind of said something to the effect of, you know, my wife, you know, my, my now girlfriend, you know, whenever she becomes my wife, because uh, at that time I think I already proposed, actually, um, <laughs> she, uh, I, I kind of said, you know, it, it she will know that I did not choose her because she was the only one for me and because I was predestined to choose her or I chose her because we are a perfect match. She will know that even though I could have been happy and married to 
perhaps even millions of other women, I only chose her. And my love for her is based not on some sort of feeling of mutual contentment. It's based on a love of Christ and a willingness to make things work with her, not just to the point to where it's going to continue on, but rather to really build her up. She knows that that commitment is based on that and not on some sort of fanciful idea of just kind of the one and only. And so there's something that in my mind that's a lot more powerful of, I could be happy with others, but I'm going to choose you, that whole idea. Um, and so that's powerful. Um, then <laughs> I was like, no, we're not. No, we're not. Um, so <laughs> all the girls, you just wait. You'll be mad at me in a second when I start reading out of Safe Haven. So I'm not kidding. <laughs> so just wait for that. Um, so this next uh, dumb idea is, is love is enough to keep us together. Love is enough to keep us together. You know, this statement, it's funny enough, is, is actually true if you're talking about godly love. But that's not the kind of love we're talking about. The kind of love that the world says will keep you together is the feeling of mutual kind of contentment. That feeling of mutual happiness. That as long as I'm still somewhat interested in you, sleeping with you, and perhaps even going out to eat with you every now and then, then I will continue to stay married to you. But if at any point that happiness, you know, fades or, or, you know, completely leaves, then, you know, love, you know, is not enough to keep us together. Um, but, you know, this is just such a, 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 an untrue idea, this concept of just this mutual happiness will keep us together. The feelings that you have for people right now that feel so strong, you know, this, this, this love that you have for them that feels so incredibly strong, those things will be taken from you in some way or at some time if you ever get married to that person, at least at some point, okay? I'm not saying all feelings of romantic love will fade. That's not what I'm, what I'm going for there. I'm saying there will be times, perhaps even longer period of time, seasons of your marriage in which things just aren't going well, in which that, 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 that kind of assurance that you have of this, this deep, intimate love you have for them will perhaps begin to fade. Um, and... Truly, if you think of the biggest causes of divorce, it's it's finances. And the scripture seems to be on about that too, considering the fact that the scripture talks a whole lot more about money than it does about romantic love. Um, Some of you are like, Song of Songs. Um, (laughs) But I'm telling you, the scripture does talk a whole lot more about money and what you do with it. Uh, And that's a bigger cause for for divorce. And so is communication. Another huge issue that people tend to, to kind of leave out. It's one thing for me to communicate with someone that I've already put a golden halo around, okay? It's a completely different thing for me to, to communicate with someone that has lost that golden halo. In the, in the former case, I give that person the benefit of the doubt in everything. Did they say something that could have been interpreted as rude? Well, that's okay. They're so great. Man, they're great. You know, I've just been thinking about that all day, how great they are. So you can, you can overlook that thing. But it's different whenever you wake up next to them in the morning and their breath stinks. And, you know, they're cranky at you. Uh, sometimes I call Erica Berica because <laughs> she's the sweetest woman in the whole world, I swear. But if she's asleep, don't wake her up. You understand? She's the nicest. She's so much nicer than me in every way. But if she's asleep, I'm like, okay, I'm sorry. I don't, you got to step lightly with that. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. The next one, I have sexual needs. This is something our culture likes to talk about a lot. Sexual needs. But the truth is, 
we won't explode if we never have sex. <laughs> you know, people live without sex all around us every day for all sorts of reasons. And God calls every single one of us to repress our sexual desires in various ways throughout our lives. Even when we're married. Even when we're married, we have to repress our sexuality because I'm going to choose to be married to one woman, not every attractive woman that I ever see, right? So I'm going to be repressing parts of my sexuality because I'm not an animal. You know, I'm not ruled by my appetite. Paul in Philippians says, I'm going to remind you, even with tears, he says that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And one of the marks of that, he says, their God is their stomach. They're ruled by their appetites. That when we're ruled by our appetites, we have put ourselves as enemies of the cross of Christ, not as people who live under the lordship of Christ. So that's one that we're not going to spend a lot of time on, but it's a, a huge lie that we have to really be conscious of because it plays out in a whole lot of different ways. One's one that we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on either. Um, but it's just this idea, again, we've talked about it some, that, it, that if I follow my heart, it's all going to work out in the end. We know that that's not true. You know, romantic movies and books and, and shows really, they, they, ref, they reflect real life and love is this other idea that goes into it. Right? That's two of them, by the way, I just did. If I follow my heart, and the next one is uh, romantic movies, books, and shows reflect real life and real love. They just don't. You know, there's just going to be very few golden sunsets where you get to uh, interact with this beautiful man who um, is a wid is widowed and has <laughs> these just great behaved little girls or a little girl, and you just love them, and they're just so perfect for you, and they're just so safe, uh, which is the premise of this book, Safe Haven. <laughs> By the way, I've noticed this theme in other, like, chick flicks as well. It's like the perfect guy, apparently, guys, get married, become widowed, but already have a, chil a child, and also be ridiculously good looking. Okay. <laughs> Easy enough. All right. They kissed for a long time in the kitchen. <laughs> Let me continue. Their bodies pressed together. His hand moving over her back and in her hair. She shivered at the feel of the slight stubble on his cheeks. When he ran a finger over the skin of her arm, she felt a flood of liquid heat course through her body. Liquid heat. I want to be with you, but I can't, she finally whispered, hoping that he wouldn't be angry. It's okay, he whispered. There's no way tonight could have been any more wonderful than it's already been. But you're disappointed. He brushed the strand of her hair from her face. It's not possible for you to disappoint me, he said. She swallowed, trying to rid herself of her fears. Just so it's touching. I don't know about you guys, but I want to marry him. What would you say? I don't know. I'm not reading this book, by the way. I'm not going to say who the owner is. I promised I wouldn't. You're not going to say who. Tyler Marble. I'm sure. <laughs> Just kidding, Tyler. So, yeah, that's not actually Tyler's. Um, yeah, that's not really Tyler's. Uh, but, you know, it's just this idea. I bet you if I wasn't reading that book just then and making a mockery of it and you were possibly reading it by yourself, you might have taken that seriously and just been like, mm, good stuff. 
you know, good stuff. <laughs> and we think that way in movies and stuff so often. I, I, every now and then I, I joke around, there'll be something on TV and we'll be watching it and uh, something will happen. And I'll joke around with Erica like, man, I'm so glad that those two teenagers just engaged in premarital sex. <laughs> Isn't that neat? Um, like totally like to point out the fact that that's what just happened. Because oftentimes we're watching the show and we're just kind of like, you know, but we, we forget like that's what's really that's what's really happening there. We can't do that. We can't become callous to the idiocy that Hollywood and shows have pointed out to us about what love really is. Um, the next one, I'm ready to choose my mate. I, I've laughed over the years uh, as I talk to, to students who are 18 and they're trying to figure out what they're going to do with the rest of their life. Um, because I have yet to meet a 40-year-old who would let an 18-year-old pick what they're going to do with their life. You know, it's, it's just at that level, what sort of perspective do we have? I, I remember uh, coming in and thinking, yeah, I'm going to do business. I mean, that was just a word to me. It's like, what is that? You go to an office building, business, you know? Um, <laughs> no clue what that meant or what that really entailed or, or what was involved. Uh, well, it's often like that in this area, have, have you done the hard work of refining your picker? You know, that, that you have some discernment of other people, of what kind of person would be a good match with you. Uh, if you put in a little work, you're probably going to not get a great result. If you put in more work, you're going to have better discernment. Uh, Garrett was even talking about just some of the, uh, the more that we understand the human brain, that we're still developing so many things until we're 25. Uh, you know, interestingly, the, the statistics in our culture, the longer people are waiting to get married, the lower the divorce rate is for them. And the younger that they're getting married, the higher it is. And that may be a part of how, you know, it is a part of what influences some of those, those rates in the church and things. Um, you know, we'll talk in a, a minute about, you know, really thinking through what am I looking for? Uh, making a list of my non-negotiables, my must-haves and can't-stands. Uh, we promote this idea of arranging your own marriage. Uh, you know, arranged marriages have all sorts of issues, but in one sense, there, there are some amazing success stories there, at least when you compare the, the statistics. You know, do you have an, a realistic view of the opposite sex at this point, or is that something that you need to, to grow in and understand more? Uh, certainly, if we're too influenced by pop culture or pornography, then we don't have a realistic view of the opposite sex. And how's your track record so far in terms of picking people? Because often, we pick someone, it ends up to be this train wreck, and then we go find someone just like them. And, and it's just a cultural story. It's like, oh yeah, she had an abusive dad, so she picked an abusive husband. Alcoholic dad, alcoholic husband. You know, what is that in us? Um, I, I remember uh, talking to a, a lady that's a, a friend of mine, and she's been married a, a number of times, and, uh, and her pastor at one point just said, he's, you don't have marriage problems, you have a picking problem. It's like, you need to stop picking people until you've refined your picker for a few years here. And, and she took that to heart. And some of us, we need to do a lot of refining of our ability to pick someone. So questioning the idea, am I ready to choose my mate? You know, and that leads on to the next one, just this idea that I, I just need to wait on God 
to bring me the perfect person. Um, again, not only is it foreign to the scripture, that idea of having to wait on God to bring you a perfect person, it also has the, uh, the dubious uh, title of, of sounding almost very spiritual. Uh, when in reality, I don't think that it is. I think that dating should be a refining process where you learn how to treat people properly, where you learn how to be selfless, where you learn what it is that you should be looking for in a mate, where you are able to build other people up in that process. Uh, like I said before, our advice to you at the end of this isn't going to be, so stop dating everybody and move back into courtship. Um, that's not what we're going for. Um, but it's just this this idea, again, of of really allowing God to work through uh, your dating process. If you give that to God, then that is, in my mind, a lot more spiritual than waiting around, which really doesn't take any growth on our part, doesn't take any courage or risk. It, um, you know, and, and I think, furthermore, the, the biggest point there is if God does send you the perfect person, are you going to be ready to date them if you haven't really refined that, that process throughout the dating process? Yeah, I think the key that we're trying to get at is what am I doing during that waiting Maybe the person, perfect person is not here, and I, need to, I do need to be doing some waiting. But what does that waiting look like? It's just I sit still and do nothing and don't try to grow in these areas, and then one day God's going to, the perfect person's going to swoop in, and they're going to want me. You know, oftentimes if, the, if God brought that perfect person to me right now, they wouldn't date me. You know, that's the, I remember the guy that I was sitting with early on in my ministry, and, I mean, he literally told me that he wanted to find someone who is a mix of Barbie, body of Barbie, and just this, the heart of Mother Teresa, and like this home skills of Betty Crocker. And I was like, and I'm like, and you think she would go out with you? Like that is, that woman could pick anyone in the world. You know, and this, this is a guy that's, you know, older than me in his 40s now, and I know you're gonna be shocked. He does not have a wife yet. Um, <laughs> That perfect woman has not found him yet, but he's waiting on God, I guess. I don't know. So I, we, that, one's, that one's problematic in that it, it's, it doesn't require any growth or courage on our part. Um, the next one, I'm going to marry the person I'm dating. This is one we just hear a lot. Um, maybe, maybe not. And, and, but we, we, uh, we cause problems when we make that assumption. You know, a lot of immorality in Christian couples especially, grows out of that. Well, it's okay because we're going to get married, but we haven't actually made any sort of covenant together yet. We haven't actually made any sort of promises. I remember talking to a guy um, not too long ago and about the, the girl that he was dating, and they were you know, in that early infatuation phase, and I, I was like, well, you know, keep getting to know her. You're going to find things that concern you or that you don't like as much? And he goes, well, I can't imagine what that would be, you know? Like, well, and that's why I know you're infatuated. Um, and in our subsequent talks, he has begun to imagine what some of those things might be, uh, you know, as the, as the months go on. But, but if we assume that we'll compromise on our boundaries, um, there's no guarantees in this until we make a guarantee to each other. Next one is you have to be married to be fulfilled. It's this uh, this this concept that you are <coughs> incomplete. <Sorry. un> <laughs> you are incomplete until you are married. Um, and I can just kind of speak towards that a little bit. Um, you know, marriage is is certainly a blessing. 
You know, and I feel so blessed by my wife, and I can't think of a, of a process that I've that I've grown more through. Um, but it's 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 difficult, you know. If you do it right, it should be at least. You know, love can be a very difficult thing if it's done right. Um, and you know, as much as I've learned from it, the the basic concept that I go back to is that the person that you are before you're married is not going to be any, you know, worse off or better off than the person that you are afterwards. In fact, if I had to, 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 to really, you know, come up with a hard and fast truth, I'd say marriage will definitely bring out in you all of the weaknesses that you didn't think that you had, but that you do. You know, and you can, you, you'll start by the gift registry and going shopping and what goes on the gift registry and what your house or apartment should look like. Um, and you'll just go from there, you know. And, and, and unless you learn to be content before marriage, you will never be content after marriage. You understand that? I want to say that again so that you guys, but just trust me on this. If you are not content with where you're at before marriage, marriage will not bring you contentment. If you are not happy before marriage, marriage will not bring you happiness. What in your mind makes you think that some other broken person is going to make you happy? Some other person that has needs and, 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 and is going to rely on you for things is going to make you happy. How does that work? Explain that to me. No, it's not. Whatever state that you are in before marriage, I guarantee you, you will either be in the same or worse after, unless you do it right. And the next one kind of follows from that. Once I get married, life will get easier. Um, and, you know, some things will be easier and some things will be harder. Uh, life will definitely get more complex in some ways because you're, you know, things are coming together. We're not just trying to worry about one person, uh, but we're really trying to, you know, to figure out how two people fit together. And then as you have kids, uh, if that's the plan, then more and more people and how all that fits together. Uh, the next one is just he or she will change. And we've all heard that one before, right? Uh, there's other versions. I'll change him. God will change her. Um, I think we have a video on this one. Yeah, we do have a video on this one. You want to go ahead and show that? Let's do it. If you find a man who's big and hairy and beastly and it seems like he wants to hurt you, but he's got a lot of money and a really big house, stick it out. You can change him. Desire is when a man wants you so much that he's willing to yell at you and beat down your door and tell you if you don't eat with him, you don't eat at all. It also kind of means he wants you to be skinny. There was once a really hot, successful man who was very goal-oriented and extremely popular who wanted to marry me, but I didn't feel like it was enough of a challenge. Never settle for something that doesn't feel like it's a challenge. Find a man who wants to imprison you with his love. The longer that you're trapped with the same person, it'll start to feel like home. Stockholm, you don't need to have fancy people friends. Things around your house can be your friends. Don't just sit on furniture, talk to it. Candlesticks are really good at love advice because they're French. The key to love is to tolerate everything. Yeah. You know, the, the reality is change can be very slow. People put their best foot forward in dating. Uh, you know, some things won't change. 
in people. And we have to, this dating process is about figuring out who people really are. And some of the changes that will happen through life may not be in the direction that, that you want. Life's a, a long uh, journey. And, and there's a whole lot of different things that, that can happen. And so, um, you know, we, we have to kind of be ready, not just for someone to get better, but for someone to get worse. And that when I promise for better or for worse, that's what it means. And so uh, banking on change, well, I don't really want to marry this person, but this, you know, if they get better, which is what I'm expecting, then I would want to be married to them. That's a really uh, dangerous gamble to take. Um, okay, and then the next one. Song of Solomon gives great dating and marriage advice. <clears throat> Song of Solomon gives great dating and marriage advice. Um, you know, Song of Solomon gives us a vision of romantic love, of eros, sexual love, but that doesn't mean that the, the picture there sets us up for success in marriage. I think we have to remember who wrote it and how his life turned out. Uh, the scripture doesn't really address dating because it's, you know, about 75 years old. Um, and it doesn't say really very much about marriage and certainly doesn't say anything about modern marriage. But it does say a lot about what it looks like to be a man or a woman of God. It says a lot about what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. And, and the way the scripture addresses these special relationships is here's the baseline of what it means to live for God. And then here's how we uh, address that in special situations. So often what we do is we try and, you know, use the concordance. It's like, well, all right, mentions marriage in uh, this chapter. And then ignore the baseline stuff and try and just start with those special instructions. Uh, you know, the, the irony, sometimes it's, it's uh, you know, favorite wedding verses, 1 Corinthians 13. But we look, 1 Corinthians 13 is not about marriage. It's about how to handle spiritual giftings in the context of assembly. But does it have something to say about marriage? Certainly it does. And there's so many scriptures like that. But I think we have to be careful about just sort of picking and choosing ones that sort of seem to be on topic and then ignoring the rest of the biblical witness to us. And I say that because there's some pretty popular series and things down here that, that sort of center on Song of Solomon. This next one is really uh, wrapped up in the idea of comparison, and it, and it goes, I know this one couple who did dating or courtship or marriage a certain way, and it worked out great for them. Um, you know, how similar is their situation to yours, really? In time and in complexity and personality and maturity, that kind of stuff. That could be like saying, I know this one couple who got rich playing the lottery, so I'll put all my money into lottery tickets. Um, you know, it really, the, the same mindset exists. I think we, we're really good at comparing ourselves to people whenever it suits our case. Mm -hmm. um, and we have to be really careful about that. And we have a lot of, you know, so we've got people that just come from different generations. There were different societal uh, pressures and norms. And, uh, you know, so I'll hear, it's like, well, my grandparents, they met, and in two weeks they were married. And it's like, and so, and they are, you know, 60 years. You know, it's like, well, that's great. Um, but does that mean that that would be a success story for me? Does that mean if the people around me followed my example, they would be really successful? And so, uh, you know, I'm always looking for wise counselors who 
not only have done this themselves and have a success story, but have worked with lots of people, have broad perspective, you know, have an understanding of the, the forces and the cultural pressures that we face in our generation, not just what they faced in their generation 40 or 60 years ago when they were getting ready to get married. Uh, so that one's a tricky one. Uh, when I find the right person, we'll live happily ever after. And we just have to kind of, you know, th there's a reason that a lot of these movies end right at the wedding. You know, we don't have to deal with any of the messy stuff after that. It's, we'll just sum that up in three words and here we go. It's going to be great. Um, again, I, I, I'm not saying that I don't think that we can be happy. I think we can. But I think there's going to be a lot of hard work and there's going to be some heartache uh, in that process. And if we just sort of think that, you know, this is all going to magically happen and be easy, uh, that's kind of, a, again, one of our dumb ideas. The next one is, I know him or her better than anybody else. And my response to that is, no, you don't. <laughs> um, their parents know them better. Their siblings know them better. Usually their best friends know them better. People that are the same gender as them that they don't go through all the niceties with know them better. Um, and there's probably people in their core that know them better, um, you know, Probably, you know, the guy at Wendy's knows them better. Um, but, and, and, I'll, and I say that, you know, realistically because, and, and here's the reason why. Because all those people aren't infatuated with the person that you're talking about, for the most part. For the most part, okay? Mm -hmm. They don't have a romantic idea of this person, so they know them better. Uh, and we already talked about how in dating, people put on a different face for a lot of that stuff. And so do you really know them the way that you know them? I know you feel like you have intimacy with them because of all your texts. But do you really know them? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's just the, the intoxication and insanity of infatuation is so dangerous. But we've heard that's like, well, I know her better than anyone else. And she's, you know, well, that's where we'd say in the context of community, if you have the advantage of I've got these people that know this person, you know, that is a huge advantage over what a lot of people get. Take advantage of it. You know, the people that can sort of speak. If, if I go out with someone just one-on-one, -on -one, they can sort of be whomever. If I go out with them with their friends, it's much harder for them to sort of put on a show. They'll probably be made fun of if they're not acting like they normally act. And then the last one, and, and we say this because it's an excuse that people get, give to get out of a lot of this, is I'm really mature for my age. Oh my goodness, the number of times people have told me they're mature for their age. Um, really mature people don't tell people they're really mature. I, just, I don't know. It's just not, I've never seen someone that I'm like, he's really mature, and she's like, yes, I am really mature. Um, so most people that I hear say that are pretty immature in significant ways. Um, you know, if I'm the, you know, the 14-year-old that wears a business suit and carries a briefcase to school, does that mean I'm really mature, or does that mean I'm just really weird? You know, it is, <laughs> is a 14-year-old acting like a 40-year-old a maturity thing, or is it just a different kind of immaturity? And I think sometimes we, we confuse that. For us, maturity is not about acting like someone older. For us, maturity is about being like Jesus. And again, one of the marks of being like Jesus is humility. And so we probably won't go around bragging, and we certainly won't use that as an excuse to do whatever we want. 
Okay, we're gonna take about 15 minutes here.